you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Welcome. This is the 74th episode or something like that. I wish that I had numbered them. There's a guy in the FinCon podcast group. He's sort of the leader of the crew. He encouraged us not to number episodes. Apple was opposed to it at one time for some reason. So I think he said it messed with the algorithm. So I never numbered my episodes, but I sure wish I had. And I may go back to it. It's just so easy to reference prior episodes when you number them. If you love baseball, I've got a great episode for you today. My guest is Richard Quickie. After working for the local utility in New Orleans for 40 years, he worked in IT. He started writing. And in 2011, he wrote a book about baseball's family ties, then began doing research and writing for Sabre, which is the Society for American Baseball Research. He grew up in North Mississippi, attended Mississippi State University, and then he came to New Orleans straight out of college. So since he's been here 40 years, he claims to be a New Orleanian, and I would say that's right. Richard has also contributed to sports-related websites, national publications, print magazines. He's sort of a big deal. <laughs> the reason Richard and I originally connected was because he had written a biography piece on my grandfather, Fats D'Antonio. Fortuitous timing because it just so happens that I'm living in New Orleans for one year and the episode, not the episode, the article came out in March. So I wanted to get him on the podcast. He's got great stories, great insight on different players throughout every era. And I'm so glad I connected with him because he's also just really gracious with his time and his knowledge and has shared with me all sorts of Fats D'Antonio pictures and articles that I didn't even know existed. So I'm really grateful to have met him. There's one article in particular about my Papa Fats that he sent to me a few days ago. And while I was reading it, I kept telling my wife, who was sitting across from me, I kept saying, this is the best article I've read in a long time. Because it turns out I'm even more like my grandfather than I ever knew or would have known had I never read this article. So it was really cool to read. You know what? I have time. I'm going to read it to you now. <laughs> you have a fast forward button, right? If you don't want to hear it. You can skip straight to our discussion. But yeah, let me read this to you. I'll pull it up. The article was written May 4th, 1988. Published in the Times-Picayune. It's called Diamond Memories by Ronnie Virgits. It reads, The Fat Man. John D'Antonio is the name on the birth certificate. But since his Jesuit schoolboy days, he's always been called Fats or Uncle Fatty or the Fat Man. He's never really been fat, just short and squatty but the name somehow fits perfectly. From the lunch counter of his Bienville Street sandwich shop behind the RTA barns, he waits now for the bus drivers and mechanics who come in wanting pork chop sandwiches and pinto beans. Fats knows buses, trains too. For 11 years until 1949, he crisscrossed two-thirds of America in them while playing professional baseball. After the Monday lunch business trails off, he begins to fill the afternoon silence with baseball talk. Someone mentions the ineptness of the Orioles. You think the club's fining him for all those mental mistakes, he wonders? 
When I played, you struck out, okay. You dropped a ball, okay. But if they told you to hit to right and you hit to left, they took your money. You swung when you should have bunted, they took your money. It wasn't a lot to take. Fat's first pro salary was $65 a month catching in the Texas Valley League, playing games on fields that cracked a half a foot in the afternoon heat. I lost 30 pounds that summer. I come home a 115-pound guy named Fats. Red-faced and raw-voiced, Fats still sounds like he belongs in a dugout, baiting an umpire or needling the other team's pitcher. It was that feistiness that got him his most coveted prize in baseball, a $10 a month raise from Branch Rickey. For the uninitiated, Branch Rickey was a general manager for the Cardinals and later the Pirates and the Dodgers. A brilliant visionary, he was also a legendary dime squeezer. One spring, he offered Pirates star Ralph Kiner a $10,000 cut. Kiner protested that he'd led the league in home runs. And where did we finish, Ralph? Last, Mr. Ricky. We can do that without you, Ralph. <laughs> His roomie did it better. So that was Fats's foe when he got the news one spring training that he was being demoted to Springfield, Missouri. Ricky was in the stands and Fats went over and started talking to him. I just kept yapping because if Ricky got a chance to talk, he'd talk you into playing for nothing. Springfield had no catcher, so I had him over a barrel. I said I wanted a chance to move up and had just gotten married. He liked that. He said, what will it take, John? And I said, $10 a month more. And he laughed. So I added and trained fare for my wife, there and back. Fats did well at Springfield, and so did his roommate, a sore-armed pitcher-turned-outfielder. One day a telegram arrived at their Buckaday rooming house in order for one of them to report up to Rochester. We were both doing good, Fats rasps. We didn't know who it was for as we opened it. It was for his roomie, a guy who went on to bat his way into the Hall of Fame, a guy named Stan Musial. There's a photograph of Fats and Musial pinned to the lunch counter wall. So old, the, the ends are curling. But Fats no longer has good things to say about Musial. Seems like in later years... Musial didn't act after Fats called him on behalf of two friends seeking a Budweiser distributorship. And I had paid his last month's rent at Springfield and gave him all the canned goods, Fats reasons. You hear me, baby? The code, the imperative, never to snub an old roomie, is still in place in Fats's life. Turn down manager job. Eventually, Fats scrapped his way into the major leagues, playing backup catcher for Brooklyn for a season and a half. Leo DeRocher was managing the Dodgers in Fats' first game, against the Giants in the old polo grounds. DeRocher ordered the first three Giants batters knocked down with close pitches. When I come up to bat, whee, right at my head, Fats says. I look up at Lombardi, the Giants catcher, and say, what the hell? Lombardi just looks over at my pitcher in the on-deck circle and says, and that jackass is going down too. In his second season at Brooklyn, Fats sprained his wrist and was sent down to St. Paul. The next year at St. Paul, he felt a pop in his shoulder while warming up. His arm began to lose its vigor. The Dodgers offered him a job as a minor league manager in New Hampshire, and Fats turned it down. He's sorry now. The team would have included blacks. And in those segregated times, Fats didn't want to come home and be jibed at for managing blacks. Today, he says wryly, I wait on him for penny matches. He came home to play one more year, aching arm and all, for the Pelicans. He and old Jesuit teammate Russ Gildig had bought a little restaurant and bar on Tulane Avenue, a few blocks from the ballpark. He figured playing for the Pels would be good for business. 
I'd play with a shot of Novocaine, which would wear off about the fourth inning, he says. But after the home games, I'd bring everybody back to the place. The place provided Fats with a living until 1972 when he moved to his present location. Hey, he says in his friendly growl voice, I raised three kids that turned out fine. That's good. I caught 28 games for the Dodgers and we won 25 of them. They wrote that in the New York Times. I come a long way for a little man. The fat man. A guy that once squeezed an extra 10 bucks out of Branch Rickey. Nothing little about him. Please enjoy my chat with Mr. Richard Quickie. Richard, thank you for joining me today. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be with you. Nice, nice day for a, for a discussion. It is a beautiful day. I call this my studio, but it is outdoors on the back porch in New Orleans. Not a better place. Mm-mm. You've lived here all your life? No, actually, I was uh, originally from uh, North Mississippi in the Mississippi Delta. I uh, went to school at Mississippi State and uh, came here straight out of school. So I've been here close to 50 years now, and uh, so this is pretty much home for me, though. Mississippi State took two of three from LSU last weekend. Is that right? That was pretty good. Pretty <laughs> I good like pitching that. By the, by, uh, by the state pitchers, yep. Now, LSU has some serious MLB prospects this year, right? The two pitchers, I think, uh, Jaden Hill and uh, Landon Marceau, are ranked in the top 100 in uh, Baseball America's preseason. So I think they probably have the best chances of uh, getting drafted. You know? I know Jaden Hill throws upper 90s consistently, and that's not even his best pitch. A slider is his best pitch. I know he, uh, he, was, he was throwing pretty hard the other night. Now He, he, uh, he gave up a few hits, and, and uh, State got, got ahead of him, and he couldn't come back. But uh, he's, he's, a good, he's a good ball player. When I was a kid, I always thought facing 95 miles an hour would just be the most fascinating thing. When I faced Josh Beckett in high school, it was so effortless. Like, it didn't, it didn't seem like 95 from the dugout. Now, once you got up to the plate, it was like, whoa. But their motions are so, and I imagine Jaden Hill is like this. I, I really haven't seen him much, but it's just such a fluid motion. And when they let go of the ball, because they're 6'4", six, 6'5", six, it's like they're on top of you. And so when they release the ball, if the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches from the plate, they release the ball and they're their hand is like 51 and a half feet from you or something like that. And then pop, it hits the glove. I was playing at Blinn Junior College. This was the summer before my senior year of high school. And Beckett and Gutzman were cocky. Philip Gutzman was his catcher. They were the, Gutzman played at, at Spring High School with Beckett. And so you never wanted to do anything to inflate their head any bigger. And I was hitting lead off. This is a, a summer select league sort of game and the first pitch of the game I took it it was right down the poo poo and I went holy shit and Gutzman looked at me and he winked and he threw it back to Beckett and I thought dang it I did not that just came out of my mouth that holy shit (laughs) that's how fast it was coming I like to ask about personal finance and investing and retirement I know that you worked in IT for 40 years correct How were you able to retire? Is it, was it a pension plan through work? I know you, you worked for the local utility, correct? Correct, yeah. I, I kind of did it the old-fashioned way. The 401ks came in to being about, about the time I started working. And so I you know, maxed out on contributions there. Uh, we, I did have a pension plan. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get the full, full benefit of it because I left early uh, from the employer. 
but it was it was pretty much don't 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 get in a lot of trouble don't borrow a lot of money so you know, living within your living means within your means uh, I mean I had I had uh, four children and had to put through Catholic school so that it took a little bit of a drain and yeah then, of course then they went to college but I, I managed to get through it and just hard hard work and uh, fortunately I had a good employer that uh, paid a decent salary and um, we made out okay so were you saving like 10% on average, would you say? Yeah, probably 10% in total, yeah. Yep. Okay. So. And were you targeting a specific age that you wanted to retire? Actually, I thought I was—I had the grand idea that I was going to retire at 55, and then uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't work out. But I got mm. at 60, I was able to get away from them. I had a, couple, had a life change at uh, around 55, and that caused me not to, not to really get there. Had a death in the family, but... Uh, it, it worked out, so uh, I was I was glad to walk away at 60 and uh, hadn't, hadn't regretted it since. You know, every, every day is Saturday now, right? <laughs> I, I know that feeling, yeah. yes. So how did you get into writing? Is that something you knew you would do once you retired? Not really. I, I'd, I'd been a baseball fan all my life. I, I used to keep lists of things about baseball, and uh, one of them was about uh, family relatives, you know, fathers, sons, brothers, and when I when I quit working, I had I was going through back going through all my list again, and I saw that I had a fairly lengthy list on, around these baseball family ties, and so I had to, I said, well, let me try let me try writing, and uh, I, I got it accomplished. It was more like a reference book that had probably had a limited really a limited audience, but it was something I did. And so actually, the way I got into more to the writing was actually we'll talk about your your grandfather. Uh, I belong to the Society for American Baseball Research, and one of the things that they do is they they put out uh, books about teams or about eras. Your grandfather, Fats D'Antonio, was one of the players that they needed an author in a book about replacement players during World War II, and he was one of the five or so Dodger players. Apparently, they were having trouble finding authors for all of these, and so one day I got an email that says, hey, you're from New Orleans, why don't you try this? And so I did. And and uh, and, the, and the editor, when I signed up for it, he, he came back and he says, "Well, you know, this is this is Fats D'Antonio, not Fats Domino, right?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Yeah, okay, I got it." So, <laughs> so through that process, I mean, it, it works out well that you get a lot of support, you get a lot of help. And I found first one was tough, and then the next one got better, and the next one got better. And so, actually, I think I've actually improved over the last eight or so years I've been doing this. And so. You know, I'm on uh, now. When when a new project comes up, I'm I'm one of the guys they call, and so I, uh, you know, I like that. And uh, in fact, I got recommended by one of the editors outside of outside of Saber to contribute to a book about um, the um, Milwaukee Brewers County Old County Stadium. So I'm going to write a chapter about the 1982 Harvey Wallbangers. Remember that? Remember that? Um, maybe that was before your time. Mm. But uh, they they got to a World Series that year, and so. So it, it worked out pretty good for me. So. Milwaukee, their stadium was similar to Cleveland's and, and the one in Arlington, right? The Texas Rangers stadium. Wasn't it just rather bland and uh, Yeah, the old, the old stadium, yeah, was, was like Arlington's. Uh, it was, uh, they had um, uh, originally, I think, the, um, they had a minor league team there for a number of years. And then, of course, the Milwaukee Braves moved there in 1954, I think, uh, from Boston. They packed that stadium. It held like 45,000 uh, fans. And even up into when the Milwaukee Brewers moved there, they were still drawing 50,000 fans. And, in fact, 
If you go to Miller Park today in Milwaukee, and I've been to a few games there, they packed that stadium. I mean, it's a rabid fan base there in Milwaukee. Mm. You wouldn't think that. I guess similar to you know to the Packers and you know Green Bay and whatever. So it's a it's a thriving baseball community. I wish we had that here, <laughs> but. Well, I want to get to why we don't have that here. When I think of the old Milwaukee Brewers, I think of Daryl Hamilton, Correct. who's a local yeah, he product. Was, right. Yeah, He's he was a Nickel State player. Right? Yes, yes, Nickel yeah. State alum. Yeah. Murdered, tragically. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 1982 would have been the year Robin Yount was playing there, Paul Molitor was playing there, Ted Simmons, Raleigh Fingers. They had a number of future Hall of Famers on that team. So your first gig was writing about relatives in baseball. Correct. When you talked about your first one. Right. And so that that was a book that you self-published. Correct. Yes. And so can you talk about that process and how it led you to writing about my grandfather ultimately? So I got interested in my first my first venture in writing was was through the book, like I said, and um I, I didn't have a lot of help with it. I, I can't, since I self-published, I was I was on my own. But then uh, I guess I got the itch to continue to do that, and that's I got uh, contacted again by a Saber member, said, "Hey, why don't you try this?" And so the Fats D'Antonio biography for this book about replacement players was my first time writing writing a story about a player. So it's like a chapter in the book. It's a chapter now. In the I book. understand. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So. Very cool. So what did you learn about him? You probably know way more about my grandfather than I do. He died when I was 12. Okay. He was 5'8", 165. Not very big for a, for a baseball player, at least in nowadays terms. Uh, he, was, um, he played on some of the Jesuit high school baseball teams in the 30s. That were like, they were like a dynasty. They were like the Yankees were in, at a high school level. And the team that one of the teams he played on was in 1936. Their their entire team made the all prep team. Seven of them were on the first team, and the other the other five were uh, were on the second team. So he was a he was a catcher as a as a as a high school player. And then in 1938, he got signed by the St. Louis Cardinals, and they played him as a shortstop initially. And he did actually did quite well at the lower levels, Class D, Class C. Um, in fact, one of his teams he played on was at Springfield, Missouri. He was a teammate of Stan Musial. Fats and his wife and Stan Musial and their wife shared an apartment. So they would go fishing on off days, and that that relationship lasted their lifetime. Uh, they they stayed in touch uh, that, that long. But anyway, so he... Uh, he, he actually did pretty well in the low minors and then got a chance with the New Orleans Pelicans here in New Orleans. And and he did okay, but then World War II kind of got in the way. And he, in uh, 1943, uh, he wasn't drafted into the service, but he had to hold a defense-related job. So he worked at a shipyard here in New Orleans. And uh, he actually played in the home games of the Pelicans when they went away. Of course, he didn't play, but when they were playing at home, so he got into about 40 games that year. But then he also played on a, a local semi-pro team at the same time. So very different times, right, for how how baseball was played then. And is that because he had to work? Yeah, he had to work. Day job was uh, was at the shipyard, and then uh, he was playing baseball. You know, I guess in the evenings when they were, you know were playing games or on weekends. You know, 
when they had home games. So there must have been other players that had the same situation. Oh, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're, that was common for the for a lot of the uh, players at the time. After playing with the Pelicans, then that again the major leagues were short on players. A lot of them had gotten in, were drawn into the service. You know, military drafted into the service. And uh, in 1944, the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers were struggling. Their team was pretty bad. Leo DeRocha was the coach, manager, and he wanted to he wanted to get a view of some of the up and coming players for his team. So uh, Fats was doing well at, at, at for the Pelicans, and he got called up at the end of the season and actually played in three games, three major league games. So the next season, uh, at the beginning of the season, this would be 1945, he. Um, their their Dodgers primary catcher got called into service in the, into the Navy, so he actually made the team out of spring training, and started for probably about six weeks or so. But he couldn't couldn't hit enough. I guess he's probably too small, really. I mean, to think about it. But uh, he he didn't hit well enough to stick around, so he uh, wound up getting back into the minors, and then that played the rest of his career until he was age 29. He um, he finally quit and wound up with the Pelicans in his last season. He was really what I would call an unlikely player that would have gotten to the majors, right? Probably if it hadn't been for the situation. Because, you know, just a year before, he's playing part-time, and then the next year he's in yeah. the majors. I mean, that's, that's not you – wouldn't, you wouldn't hear of that today, right? So, uh, but to get to play at Ebbets Field, oh, how cool is that? Yeah, that was for sure. I wish, I wish you know, as, as I went through that, I, I wish I had uh, – an opportunity to talk to him about that because that's really where the where the fun stories come in and what I found through the writing is when you can talk to the players or their family members uh, it really makes a difference me too yeah I, I actually uh, your aunt Joan, Joan I talked to her mm-hmm. and she gave me a lot about the personal life and uh, that really helped fill out the story pretty well and so it made for a full biography of not only his playing career but what he did after his uh, playing career what his family you know growing up what his family was like that that's the part I, I find interesting well i'd find that interesting too i'd be curious if you remember some of the details that she gave you my my dad tells his favorite stan musial story when they were in the minors stan the man was insistent on pitching even though he was an outfielder and fats of course was the catcher and stan musial gave up like 17 runs or something crazy and so the manager came out and said he was going to take Stan Musial out, and, and Fats said, well, you're going to take me out too because he was drenched in sweat. They were wearing flannel uniforms, right. and so uh, he never pitched again after that, Stan Musial. Yeah, that, that was his last year, yeah, that's correct. But do you remember any stories that she told you, my Aunt Joni, about Fats or maybe Stan Musial? Well, he was in a uh, – the Dodgers team was traveling on a train. I forget from which city to which city. But there was, there was a train wreck. He actually, he wasn't on the train. He, he left at a different time from some others. And a few of the players actually got banged up a little bit uh, on that. So that, that, was, that was pretty interesting. I thought you were going to say killed. No, no. I always found interesting that my papa and grandma Hilda had four kids. They had three daughters before my dad was born. But there was another... John D'Antonio, born before my dad, who died. How old? I think, I think it, at uh, in very young, in child, you know, very much like an infant. An infant, correct? Yes, yeah. yeah. 
That's right. I guess if they hadn't tried for a boy, I wouldn't right. be here. But even if that death hadn't happened, then my yeah. dad's not born and I'm not born. So you talked about Milwaukee having a devoted fan base and packing their stadium. You mentioned us having the Pelicans here in New Orleans at one time. Why don't we have a major league team? And is there talk of us ever getting a major league team here? Well, give you a little bit of history on on uh, major league baseball in uh, in the city. Actually, a number of major league teams used to hold their spring training in New Orleans for a number of years, Yankees included. And so there was a, there was a strong following back in the 30s, 40s time frame. So when the Superdome was being conceived, one of the thoughts was, well, we'll have a baseball configuration so that we can host Major League Baseball team. So as early as probably 1969, 1970, before the Dome's completed, right? I mean, there, it's in construction they were out pitching, the city and the state were out pitching New Orleans for to get a franchise. And several teams that appeared, you know, going through the, reading this through the newspapers, appeared to be interested, you know, the Twins, the Orioles, the A's, uh, at different times, you know, entertained the thought of relocating their 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 franchises here. But it never, never really, of course, never really happened. And I think the biggest problem was they didn't have a big money backer here in the city who said, I- I'm going to take take control of this. Kind of like a, a Tom Benson now or a Rita Benson who's that's there, you know, they, they're going to they're going to they're going to support. They're going to bring the team. They're going to make sure it happens. So it really would never happen. And so they used to have um, exhibition games, major league exhibition games in the Superdome. And they were using them as a way to demonstrate, you know, boy, we could draw crowds here. Well, it really didn't happen. Mm. It, it really wasn't as, as much. The Superdome had some early uh, problems with the field that got kind of they kind of got a bad rap. The, the Superdome kind of got a bad rap, which there were things that could have been fixed. But uh, so anyway, they, the uh, that it never really occurred. And so about probably in the mid '80s, I think they finally dropped trying to get a team here. And I, I don't think at this point, I don't think they will ever have a team here. We don't. We don't have again the, the money backer. The, the, apparently, the Superdome's outdated for baseball. They'd have to build a stadium. I just don't think the city can fund that, or I don't think anybody's going to come here to, to do that at this point. We lo- we lost the Zephyrs, what in 2019. I, I'm doubtful we'll ever get a minor league team back. I mean, it's a shame, but uh, baseball, Major League Baseball restructured the minor leagues this past year. They got rid of 40 teams. And, and, and trying to uh, improve or get more efficient with that. And I just, uh, unless unless somebody else just drops out or, you know, I don't I don't see the New Orleans getting another team at this point. For those listeners not in this area, Tom Benson was the owner of the Saints Correct. before yeah. he died. Does Correct. his wife own the Saints now? Yes. She does. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't realize the Zephyrs were no longer a team here, so they were eliminated in 2019? They, uh, they're, that was their last season was in 2019. They, the, the franchise, the owner moved the franchise to uh, uh, Tulsa. Of course, there wasn't a minor league season last year, so they didn't play. So, uh, But last year was the first time baseball hadn't been played here in the professional level since 1992, I think, is when the, when the Brewers first brought their, the minor league team here from Denver. And really... There never was a, a local ownership. It was always somebody brought the team here to uh, – there may have been some uh, minor, you know, minority owners in the, in the club, but 
no one really ever stepped up in here. Now, Tom Benson actually had thoughts of trying to bring a minor league team here before the Zephyrs came. And uh, it was he was trying to line up a double uh, A team, but uh, he got uh, Major League Baseball trumped him, brought in the triple A team in '92, I think. That's a shame. I feel like double A baseball is the best brand of baseball yeah, from yeah, a professional probably, yeah, perspective. Probably right, yeah. Still young enough to do you know do a lot of crazy stuff, and then but they're <laughs> they're they're eager to get to the next level, right? They're they're wanting to get uh, get their time in the show. And, uh, yeah, I have a good buddy that played for the Zephyrs, and he talked about AAA baseball and just how different it is. You have guys who are on their way out, on their way out for their career. That, right, yeah, you yeah. got Benito Santiago, yeah, right. thirty-seven years old. Right. Um, you have guys who walk into the clubhouse and sports centers on TV, and they just resent the guys who got a shot right, and they right. didn't. Or, right. right. Yeah, I mean the disparity in income is so vast, right? right. You you walk into the clubhouse after making twelve hundred dollars a month and see your buddy on TV, who you know you're better than. Right. He just happens to play in a different organization, and he gets a shot, and he's playing in the big leagues every night in front of forty thousand people and getting these massive million dollar checks. Yeah, so. it's got to hurt. But that organization, the the Zephyrs, they were, it seems like Brewers. They were Dodgers. They were Marlins. Why did that change ownership so much, or the, affiliation? I should say. I mean, it's really up to the uh, it's really up to the Major League Baseball as to who they decide who gets what teams. And so, when one team leaves a, an area, they'll they'll try to fit another team there. And so, different franchises got involved. I mean, the probably the most successful one was the uh, Astros. Were here. That was the year 1998. I believe they won the uh, the uh, World Series, the the minor league World Series that year. Lance Berkman, mm. uh, uh, Roy, uh, what was his name? Uh, Roy Oswalt. Roy Oswalt, players like that that carried the team. I remember when Berkman was coming out of Rice, which is in Houston. Right. There was a big stink about whether or not he'd be able to hit with a wooden bat. As somebody who played college baseball and went to play in wood bat leagues in college. There is not a big difference. Right. If you can hit, you can hit. Right. So I just thought that was so ridiculous. And, of course, he proved everybody wrong. So is that stadium going to sit empty now? Zephyr the Zephyr Stadium? stadium? Uh, they actually, the, the local professional soccer team has taken control of it, and they're going to play their full season there. They've, they've tried, I think, a few uh, high school games there, uh, football games. They made a configuration. I don't know the, how successful those were. Right now, the um, – the, the soccer, the gold. I think it's the gold. I think it's the soccer teams. Gold. I didn't know they had one here. Yeah, is uh, is playing their playing their games there. So as you know, Fats played at every level of minor league baseball, and I know many minor league teams have scrapped their teams. Does does that upset you a little bit? I mean, baseball's changing, and I don't know how many rounds of the draft we're going to have anymore. Well, they're talking about twenty, which is. Used to be it was forty, right? And then yeah. last year they had only five. So well, when Piazza was playing, it was right. fifty-three. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was like number fifty-something, right? So minor league baseball, I think, is where I think a lot of kids grow their interest. So it, it saddens me that they've got fewer those teams because that means fewer cities, forty fewer cities are going to have that available to them to to grow the fan base. And, that, mm. and that's a big problem right now with Major League Baseball is they're uh, they're not getting a new they're not getting a new wave of kids that are following the game daily. I mean, they'll occasionally go to a game. They might have one favorite player, but they don't. Uh, 
it's not it's not like when when I grew up or certainly probably when you grew up where um that was a big deal. Major League Baseball was a big deal and it's it's lost it's lost some of its luster unfortunately. That's true. My friend is the head coach at Nickel State down the road and he was telling me that the kids don't watch baseball anymore at all. Right. Major League Baseball has a Jackie Robinson day where every team wears number 42 on their jersey. They said half the players don't even know who Jackie Robinson is. That's, wow. that's pretty sad, right? That is. So, the Major League Baseball is trying hard to change that. They're, you know, New Orleans has an academy for young, youngsters to learn the game, uh, learn not just to play, but all aspects of managing a baseball field, you know, the business of baseball in an effort to try to get more kids involved at an earlier age and kind of get them hooked. A number of major league cities have done that. New Orleans was fortunate enough to get that, where the kids, you know, get, get firsthand playing and raking the field and cleaning the dugout and, you know, preparing preparing for the games with selling the tickets so they get the full breadth of uh, operation of a, of a baseball team. It's pretty interesting. The book you brought me this afternoon has the Atlanta Braves 90s team. They had a bit of a dynasty there. I got hooked as a kid watching both the Braves on TBS and where I lived in South Louisiana, we got WGN. So I got to watch the Cubs. And the Cubs appealed to me more, and I think it had a lot to do with the the day games they didn't have lights back then right. i don't right. think they got lights until the late 80s yeah i think that's correct yeah so. and harry Carey was just more engaging right. I mean, you'd walk through the den and on your way to go throw the baseball outside with your buddy and just hearing his voice i get nostalgic right. just thinking about it yeah there were a lot of cubs fans who grew up around here and when i was that age we would go to houston and watch the Astros play. Our vacation was was scheduled around when the Cubs were in town, and I believe Ryan Sandberg must have gotten hurt on turf at some point because I remember my dad and my brother being so disappointed that Sandberg wouldn't play the the night they would go to the game. So my brother's favorite player was Ryan Sandberg. I got to like Mark Grace quite a bit, but in say 1987 to 1989. My favorite player was a local product. Right. Will Clark. Will Clark. Yeah. He was, he was a favorite of a lot of folks uh, at that point in time. He hadn't had to play hurt as much. He'd be in the Hall of Fame right now. A lot of people think he should be anyway. But um, his first five years that he played, I mean, he, he, was, he was one of the best players in all of Major League Baseball. At one point, he had the highest contra- contract signed. Uh, of course, they were changing every other year during that point, period of time. But uh, he was a fantastic player. And, uh, of course, you know, being a uh, Jesuit local, my son went to Jesuit. He was like, followed him. Of course, having the Mississippi State background, uh, he played at Mississippi State. Was, uh, yeah. was really, uh, had a fantastic career. He played at the same time as Rafael Palmero. Yep. Uh, Bobby Thigpen. Bobby also. Uh Jeff Brantley. All, all of them. They had some good teams back then uh, at Mississippi State. So your interest in Will Clark was because of New Orleans, Mississippi State, but did you follow his career closely? Yeah, I did. When he was with the Giants? Yeah. At one time, I claimed to have every baseball card ever produced of, uh, of <laughs> Will Clark. Of course, when they started making them by the hordes, I, I had to drop out. Yeah, I followed his career uh, very, very closely. I collected a lot of notes about his career. And that was one of the stories that I wrote in the uh, for Crescent City Sports. I did a nine-part series about Will Clark, 
it covered each major phase of his career. Like I said, I, I wish I wish he was in the Hall of Fame. We used to have a mirror on our front door at home, and I would take a bat out in the driveway and try to mimic his swing in that mirror, which was impossible to do. And it probably did me no good because as a hitter, you you can't mimic players' swings as much as you try. But man, he had the sweetest swing. I should get on YouTube one day and just go look at well, him have, hitting. Have you seen? There's a there's a I think it was on Twitter. There's a guy. He's probably in his 40s, and he he mimics uh, Will Clark's swing. It is is unbelievable. It is it is so like it. It's, really, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. so I guess he's been practicing this for years, and so he's he's got it down pat. So I read one of your articles and learned that his first year of eligibility for the Hall was 2006, and he needed 5% of the vote right, to get, yeah. in order to be considered right. in yeah, To stay on the ballot for, for up, at that time it was up to 15 years. But uh, he, he didn't make it. Now, he, he got considered again, I think as recently as about three years ago, to have a veterans committee that looks back at players that didn't make it, get second consideration. And uh, he missed out again. He had to get like 16 votes, and he only got like maybe 10 or 12 out of the out of the voters. And so he missed out again. His his numbers, if you look at it on a you know uh, in the current uh, analytical approach, he was up there in you know batting average, on base percentage, slugging percentage. He just when his career when he when he when he missed a number of games later in his career, his overall production went down. And I think that affected him. Uh, he he didn't have enough strong years to to get to the to the Hall of Fame. Now, one of the things you had written in this article that I read, you had said at the time of Clark's nomination, he told MLB.com that it would be a big big time feather in the cap if that happens. But if it doesn't, that's okay because I didn't play this sport to get into the Hall of Fame. I played this sport because of the challenge and competition. My initial thought when I read that was, as evidenced by all these guys being left off because of steroid usage, guys like Bonds, for example, Clemens, I think the Writers Association are taking these guys' personalities into account. Pete Rose, for example. Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling. His politics, they don't like. So him saying that that would be a big feather in the cap to me that that reminded me that clark turns off a lot of people and when i had the the head coach at nichols on he and i were talking about how a lot of all-time greats were just pricks they were total a-holes bonds ty cobb i don't know if clark was to that extent a-hole but do you think that that works against him and or, or maybe talk about why is that perception of clark well he, why does it exist is is he in a hole he uh, well let me let me answer first yeah he, he was cocky yeah he was confident yeah. he was confident in his ability so he he knew he could hit but he was brash i mean he pissed people off in the in the clubhouse and with the giants in particular there were several players that just rubbed the wrong way and and i think you know that probably that uh, got evidenced by writers and other people, uh, but you know I don't think it's any different than what we would see today, to be honest with you. But I think at that time, maybe it was a little thought to be a little uh, off base to, 
to have that kind of attitude, but uh, in the end, uh, he he got misjudged, I, in my opinion. Uh, of course, I'm I'm biased, biased right? I'm biased yeah. about it. But uh, so we talked about my grandfather. He played with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Obviously, you had an article recently about nice guys finishing last. Right. The origins of that phrase are from the right. Brooklyn Dodgers, right? Right. So so Leo DeRocher, this was in I think nineteen forty. 1947, they were in the run for first place. And they played the New York Giants in a three-game series. And in, in one of the games, the, um, the Dodgers lost, but the Giants batters hit three home runs in the game. And, and Mel Ott, who is a local New Orleans Hall of Famer, was manager player manager for the Giants at the time. So... Uh, the next day after the game, one of the local uh, sports writers is sitting on the bench with uh, Leo DeRocher, and he's kind of needling him, kind of see if he could get him excited because he was, he was known to be controversial and say controversial things. So he said, well, come on. He says, uh, Leo says, you know, I know you won the game, but those guys hit three home runs off of your pitchers. And, uh, and DeRocher says, yeah, but, he says, but those are, that male eye guy, he's just a nice guy. Their whole team is just a bunch of nice guys. And he says, he says, look where they are. They're in last place, and I'm in first place. It's like <laughs> nice guys finish last. So uh, it got attributed, actually, to Mel Ott uh, as the player he was talking about when, when DeRocher said that. So, and Mel Ott is Jesuit? Well, no, he was uh, old-time uh, Gretna. This is, he was in the uh, 1920s. He was before. Uh, he, he grew up in Gretna as a 16-year-old. He signed on with the Giants. By the time he was 19, he was playing and leading the league in home runs. And when he retired in 48, he was the National League leader in home runs with like 502 home runs. He was a he was one of the he's probably the best all-time player from New Orleans. So, so what prompted you to write about nice guys finishing last? The Melot connection for Crescent City Sports. Sort of my role is to talk about is to write about baseball history everything else on that website is current day games so they uh they kind of look to me to kind of bring up some of the historical aspects and understand it gets pretty good they get a pretty good response from that uh, so what's the most interesting discovery that you've made in trying to connect players in relatives and maybe something that really surprised you or wow i didn't know that wow one of the one of the families that i found that, that I, I called the first family of, of Major League Baseball was the Harrison family. You may not be familiar with them. They were is that Jerry. Uh, Jerry Harrison was was junior was one of the most recent players, but uh, Jerry Harrison's grandfather uh, Sam Harrison actually played in the Negro Leagues in the 1940s and got his cup of coffee with the I think the White Sox played only about five games. A cup of coffee is you get. Uh, you get one shot and you don't you don't you don't stay very long. That's in the big leagues. That's in the big leagues, right? So, it turns out he had uh, he had three sons that played professional baseball. Two of them made it to the major leagues. Uh, Jerry Harrison Sr., John Harrison, who actually I wrote about, uh, I wrote his biography for a, a book called One Hit Wonders. Mm. Uh, and then a, a third son, Sam Jr., who made it to the minors but didn't make the majors. Then uh, Jer- Jerry Harrison Sr. had Jerry Harrison Jr. and Scott Harrison. And then the other, his other brother had like 
multiple siblings, all of which got into the minor leagues but never got to the majors. But all total, there were 10 players in that family that played in professional baseball in, at three generation levels. Jeez. And so that, I, thought, I felt that was, that was pretty amazing. Uh, when you said one-hit wonders, the guy who came to mind was a New York Yankee, Kevin Moss. You remember that name? Yeah, but he, he played. He played. He got more than one hit, though. <laughs> he, was, he he didn't stay very long, but uh, he. Yeah. It seemed like he yeah. hit ten home runs in his well, first fifteen year, at yeah, bats, he did. or he something. He like seventeen home runs and about you know uh, hundred at bats. You know, to start his career, he didn't he didn't last very long after that. But uh, yeah. I think of Chris Sabo and Jerome Walton. They had a rookie of the year battle. Yeah, yeah. Jerome Walton was a one hit wonder, yeah, yeah. or so, not exactly one hit, right. but you know what I mean. Yeah. So you're wearing a Yankee cap right now. Why is that? Well, uh, I guess I, I, I've, I've been enamored with all the history and lore of the Yankees, you know, going back to the very beginning. There's just so many fascinating players that in the, in the era, that, you know, the different dynasties that they had over the years. I just got intrigued by that. Uh, I, Mickey Mantle was a, was a favorite of mine growing up, and I used to have arguments with my brother about who was better, Mantle or Mays, right? Do you have a favorite Yankee of all time? I'd probably say Derek Jeter. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. A new-timer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hmm. I, and maybe because I saw him play more. So yeah. how, how did you feel about them tearing down the old Yankee Stadium? Uh, it was probably time to go. Uh, I, got a, I got a chance with my son to go uh, see one of the last games of the – of that in that September before they before it was uh, discontinued before it was, uh, they quit using it and uh, it was it's it's nice it's a, it's a lot of nostalgia there right and uh, it was fun now the new one's basically a replica right it, it is for the most part yeah it is and, just uh, bigger just, yeah more mo- just modern it's got all the modern amenities and you know it's uh, you know you you can you can sit in the sit in the uh, s- certain part of the stands and People come take your order for your for your concessions and come bring them to you, and it's mm. like it's really nice. So. <laughs> now, did LSU do the same thing and basically build a replica of the old Alex box? You know, I don't, I don't know if that. Uh, I don't know. Uh-huh. It seems similar to me. I, I played in the old did Alex you? box, okay. and I went for the first time to watch them against Nichols State okay. a few weeks ago. It, it seems similar, but it's, okay. I played there, but that was now twenty years ago, so it it could be different, and I wouldn't realize it. They have a stacked team, huh? They must have a lot of major league prospects on that team. The LSU team? Yeah, like Dylan Cruz, I think, has – is that his name, Dylan yeah, Cruz? He's a true freshman. Wow. I, th- yeah. I think he has something like eight home runs in right, 16 already. games yeah, right. or something. Yeah. And then we already talked about the pitchers. I, I saw – what is his name? Drost hit probably the hardest hit ball to right field I've ever seen. I mean, just crushed it. Right. But they were hitting doubles in the gap after doubles in the – I mean, it was just a, a hitting display. Well, they have uh, Devin Fontenot is a closer. He's been there, I think this is his fourth fourth year. He'll probably get drafted. He's been pretty effective as a closer. Uh, they got a second baseman is Kay Dowdy. He, yeah. He appears to be uh, – I think on a on a good track. So yeah, he's they got up a, some they, big Overall, they got a pretty young team this year, though. Actually, so it, it seems like everybody does. That must yeah. have something to do with COVID too. I think uh, I think uh, some of the players didn't come. You know, didn't come back. Yeah. Mm. So. But you pull for Mississippi State, huh? Yep, that's my team this year. They got a they got a, a 
of course, a couple of years ago, let's see, 2019, we um, got to the World Series. In fact, that was one of one of our trips. My, my son and I made when when make an annual baseball trip, and one of the stops was in uh, Omaha because we thought we were going to be able to get to the finals of the uh, World Series. Mm. We, we we saw a game between Vanderbilt and Michigan, but it wasn't state, so we missed out on seeing state play. That was an experience. Uh, was it last year that Vanderbilt had two pitchers in the top five picks or something like that? Well, they're coming back. They're they're there this year. Oh, okay. Uh, so they were going to be. In fact, one of them uh, just threw a no-hitter, struck out 15 batters. Uh, he's a son of Al Leiter, who is a major league pitcher. This, so this, the, the Vanderbilt player's name is Jack Leiter. Huh. And then uh, the other one is, uh, the other good pitcher is, uh, uh, I forget his first name, Kumar. Is Kumar, I can't remember his last name, but uh, he's, he's probably a, a number one draft pick, actually. Now, is the Fontenot kid related to Mike Fontenot? Uh, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't make that connection. Mm. I remember we struck out 17 times playing against Lamar University. This was my junior year. And the guy who struck us out 17 times went on to be the Southland Conference Pitcher of the Year. This must have been 2004. I ran into him at a Baker Street pub in the Rice University area of Houston. And he was talking to a buddy of mine about what kind of juice he was taking. This is, it was so commonly used at this time that they would talk openly about it. And he was using words that I wasn't familiar with, like wind straw and all this, these different types of test. And, and I thought, oh, man, well, that's not fair. I wonder if he was taking it when he was striking us out 17 times. Well, do you know that he gave up the home run to Bonds that broke Hank Aaron's record? Oh, really? And at that time, he was not a known user. And I don't even think he was a starter. He was like a middle reliever in the big leagues at this time. And I remember seeing it on SportsCenter and thinking, I bet you people have no clue that that little 5'10 pitcher is also taking the juice. He's used to, right? Yeah, and he ended up being suspended for... 50 games within a year or two. Yeah, his name is Clay Hensley. Okay. Yeah, so did you collect baseball cards at all growing up? I did as a child, and uh, uh, it was the kind of thing where I lived in a little small town, so you could, you know, for a couple of nickels, you could go and buy a couple of packs of baseball cards at the drugstore. Of course, in college, I, I didn't I didn't collect, but after came to New Orleans, was on my own. I got back into collecting baseball cards at that point. So, do you have favorites? Favorites, uh, favorite cards, or maybe cards that are worth a lot of money. Unfortunately, I, I collected a lot of cards in the late '80s when they when they produced billions of them. Same so here. I have, I have some of the older older pre you know pre 1960 cards. Uh, one of them is a uh, Willie Mays. It's not in all that great great a condition, but uh, I, I have a Mickey Mantle. That would have been in like 1957 is one of the one of the hotter cards, but it's got a big tear and down the side, down the middle of it. So, uh, well, and but, now they're ridiculous about the mint condition. Exactly. I mean that's that's gone. Uh, baseball cards is so are so hot right now. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Um, you know Mike Trout card like he's only like been in the league eight or nine or ten years. You know one of his cards recently sold for several million dollars. How can that be? You know, it's like, and, and what, it's one of these cards. It's a one. It's a one of a kind. Uh, it's in mint condition. 
and so it's it, the market's really gone uh, gone off the, off the scale. So is is that what these manufacturers do? They just through scarcity increase the value like i'm only going to make six of these and then make it worth a lot of money is that how they do it like tops now most a lot of their cards are produced on demand in other words you they they advertise we're selling this card at the end of the week we're not we're not making any more so if you want it you buy it right and so some of those cards have a run of just a few hundred maybe a thousand a couple thousand and that's it right whereas you know when we bought cards in the 80s they, they made millions of a Will Clark or whatever. Oh yeah. So, um, so it's really, they really, it's all, it's really changed a lot. And uh, I mean, I don't, I don't keep up with all of that. I, I buy, I buy the. They still make the sets and the boxes, the seven hundred cards. I buy those, and that's it. <laughs> do you? Yeah. So I used to do that sometimes, but there was nothing more fun for me than buying a box and opening, opening the packs. Sure. Yeah. So. And it was so hard for me to save the packs and not open them. But I would start. I started a little business at school right. where I would. <laughs> take the packs to school and sell them for two dollars a pack. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yes. made a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, a lot of money to a twelve-year-old, anyway. Right. But I, I, I had about twelve hundred. I have about twelve hundred Will Clark cards, different, different actual different cards, oh, wow. and they're probably they're probably like two thousand, if you will, nowadays. You know. Huh. And they're still they're still making his card. I mean, they're retro kind of retro cards, but all of these new new fangled sets are. Come out with the retro players. You can still find his, you know, a, a, a 2020 Will Clark card is still out there. Hmm. So, my mom and dad, when they were still married, went to San Francisco in I think it was '89, and they went to a Giants game and sat behind first base at Candlestick Park, and they brought a baseball card of mine to get signed by Will Clark. Now, what are the odds? And my dad said that he told a security guy or a cop that was on the field. Hey, will you tell Will Clark that I went to Brother Martin? And um, the cop said, you tell him. <laughs> my dad said, okay. Hey, Will, yeah, right. uh, I went to Brother Martin. And he came over, and they talked for a minute, and he got the card oh, signed. That's, that's cool. You know, I was laying in bed the other night, and I was thinking, what if they actually didn't get his signature? Well, you know, I was right. an eight-year-old kid. Maybe right. they just signed you it themselves. Yeah, I should ask him about that. <laughs> well, I think it was, uh, I think it was 19, uh, 1989, in fact, the year that... The Giants and the A's played in the World Series. You know, that was the earthquake, the earthquake year, yeah. They actually played a, uh, an exhibition series in New Orleans at the Superdome. Oh, that I didn't year. know that. And uh, my son took his cards, Mark McGuire, Will Clark, Jose Canseco, and went out into the uh, one part of the field where they were, and he actually got them signed. Yeah, Get so, out. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Oh, those teams were stacked. Yeah, right. Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart, right. Uh, who else? Kevin Mitchell was with the uh, Giants, right? He was one of the that, better yep. players. Uh, Jeff Leonard. Yep. Remember Kevin Mitchell made that one-handed catch in the outfield yep. with yep. his bare hand? Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's incredible. There was probably the, the coolest experience I had at that age. I was either seven or eight, and the LSU basketball team played an intra-squad scrimmage at Thibodeau High School where I was living. And our coach took us to the game. We got to sit on the front row. And so we were looking at, up at these giants. And we all knew who Chris Jackson was. He was the star. But uh, Stanley Roberts was this incoming freshman. And we all paid a lot of attention to him. But there was this other seven-footer named Shaquille O'Neal. 
and he and we didn't even pay that much attention to him but it was it was such a show and this had to have been 87 or 88 mm-hmm. and we got a picture of the team and dale brown signed it and of course i just threw it you know, i hung it on the wall and would run into it when i'm playing nerf basketball in my room so it's in terrible condition if i still have it um did you know ron washington at all no i never never met him mm-hmm. uh, i haven't written anything about him uh but uh, he, he, his career was pretty interesting in that I think, he, I think he went to John McDonough High School here in New Orleans, which for baseball was not, was not that prevalent. It's like L.B. Landry yeah, down exactly the street. Right. So, uh, but he, he got enrolled in, a, in an academy that the Kansas City Royals put on where they took players, amateur players, and said, we're going we're gonna to teach you how to play baseball. So he got enrolled in that camp. Actually, several players, and they actually wind up getting into the major league. So they spent like six months in Florida and played baseball every day. And he would, and then the guy who owned uh, the team would make them go to school classes in the afternoon. So it wasn't just just baseball. And that's how uh, that's how he got his start. And then, of course, he eventually signed a, a contract. I don't think he actually signed the contract with the Royals. I think he started out with maybe the Twins. I think. And that was like the Dominican before the Dominican, right, it sounds right. like. So he was a good utility player. He didn't he didn't hit all that much. But he was a apparently was a good team player and a guy to, a good guy to have around on the team. Of course then he managed the uh, Texas Rangers, what, from two thousand seven to two thousand what, twelve, eleven or twelve. And you know, got they won two pennants with the Rangers. And what was that one year they came within one pitch with the Cardinals of winning the World Series. It was the seventh game of the World Series, and they wound up losing. And then there was a scandal at the end of his managerial career. Yeah. Didn't he admit to cocaine use? Yeah, I think he wound up admitting to that. And he, I mean, unfortunately, took him out of a, you know, manager's type job. Now he's he's been with the Braves right lately as a coach. So he's still still in the game. Apparently, you know, well well liked. Players liked playing for him. He was just Mm. he was a players' coach and. um, I remember during the, one of those World Series, they they showed him, you know, in the dugout. He would sit, stand on this top step, and when one of his players, you know, got a double or somebody was making a steal, they showed him he was jumping up and down in the in the dugout like a little kid. Mm. I mean, he was just, uh, you know, he was in the he was in the movie uh, Moneyball. Did oh, you see that? I did. Yeah. He was the coach that called Wash when they went and uh, talked to the guy from the Red Sox. Said, "You're going to be a first baseman." Oh, yeah, I was a big fan of Moneyball. I, I remember reading it and telling my dad he had to read this book. I thought it was fantastic. I came up in that era and prided myself on taking a lot of pitches and drawing a bunch of walks. And I never felt like my coaches appreciated right, right. it very much. But I wish that they had read that book, too. Washington was an old school guy. I mean, he probably still is. And you would wonder how he would make out today as a manager with all the new fangled analytics and all that dusty baker is the manager of the astros and when they you know when they let go uh alex core after the uh, he he moved on and then they fired uh they brought in a new coach and fired him immediately because he was also related to the scandal uh, they hired dusty baker and he came out of, out of the blue old school and it's like mm. how's this guy gonna manage but he did <laughs> and they said he you know he's adapted and he's like uh you know takes all the inputs from all the People in the front office that are generating all these numbers, but then at the end of the day, he makes up his mind what he's going to do. And so, I remember reading the book about the Astros 
where Hinch was going through the interview process, and they asked him what they thought about the li- the lineup being sent down from the front office, and Hinch said that that wasn't okay with him, and they said, good, yes, you know the players intimately, how they feel, and and so that's the right answer, and they ended up, of course, hiring them. And then after the Astros stealing signs scandal, they, of course, kicked Hinch and right. Cora out, fired them, but they were both back in baseball almost right away right as soon as uh, hinch is back this year with the tigers and then cora is back went actually went back to the red Sox. speaking of the Sox, uh the white Sox. you wrote about comiskey park at one time what's your interest in in comiskey park and the white Sox? it was uh it was one of the saber books where they picked some of the old time this is the old comiskey park uh and saber is society for American american baseball research yeah, so uh, it was one of those books that we, a number of us collaborated to write about uh, some of the players and, and some of the games. So I, I had uh, I had several game accounts uh, that uh, of games that were played in Comiskey Park. So, so I know you, one of your goals in retirement is to visit all of the major league parks. Yep. How are you doing? <laughs> are you trending? Are you going to uh, accomplish your goal? I'm about about halfway there. Uh, I think 18 out of 30. It's pretty good, and uh, but I've probably seen games in I think another fifteen parks that are no longer there, right? So, mm, Comiskey, Comiskey, uh, the old Comiskey being one of them. But uh, I've, I've been to the you know, the current Comiskey uh, park, and so my son and I have been taking these annual trips ever since I retired, and uh, and they're pretty fun. So we we generally try to uh, take a uh, we look we've been we looked for the multiple. Uh, cities that were in close proximity. So we would catch a game like in New York on Friday night, Philadelphia on Saturday night, and Washington on Sunday. And so we'd take the train and went, and that was a pretty good trip. We did uh, San Diego, Los Angeles. Of course, there's two teams in Los Angeles. The the latest trip uh, in 2019, we did uh, the Cubs, White Sox, and the Brewers, since Mm. Milwaukee's only about 80 miles from there and then of course we caught the world series game in omaha on the way back so so the teams that we haven't seen are mostly in the isolated areas and so we probably have to just make a solo trip to detroit or you know or minneapolis or uh cleveland or whatever some some of them are close so we might try it but uh one of our uh secondary goals in uh on these trips is to uh, is to try out all the italian food in these different cities <laughs> Awesome. My, my son and I like both like to eat, so uh, it was. Uh, that's 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 also part of the planning. Is okay. What Italian restaurants can we find? <laughs> one one interesting one was in Chicago. We found this restaurant and it had good reviews. Didn't really know anything else other about it than what we could read on the internet. And so it was a uh, it was a night game. So we said we'll go get a late lunch and then head to the stadium. So it was in the the restaurant was in the business district area. So we walk in. We're we're like prepared to go to the game right shorts tennis shoes baseball caps so we walk into this restaurant and uh they says can we help you said we'd like a table for two and she kind of looked back and she like she she kind of studied us and she said i'll be back so she went off and she brought a guy uh, probably a manager or whatever to the front and said she said these two gentlemen would like a table he just kind of hemmed and hawed and so lee finally said well you know we'll just well if you got a bar we'll just eat at the bar and they were like, mm-hmm. so 
And so we figured out we, we weren't dressed for the restaurant. It, in fact, it turned out to be, it was a fine dining Italian mm. restaurant. <laughs> so we managed though. We said, look, if there's a table in the back, we'll do that. And we promise we'll take our baseball caps off. <laughs> well, we get in, we actually get in and the bar is the premier seats in the whole restaurant. <laughs> so that's why we got that look. But that was, uh, we got some good uh, homemade pasta and that was, uh, that was one of our fun trips. So, so do you have a, favorite park or at least give me your top three well you know the uh, yankee stadium the old yankee stadium uh, fenway and the dodgers are the oldest parks around and of course they have a lot of the nostalgia and history around those but actually my favorite is the pnc in pittsburgh it's, because of the view yeah it is something it I is bet. really that's really uh, it's just the whole setting there it's on the river it's uh it's in a nice, uh, nice area. The park has kind of got the the uh, old style uh, feel to it, uh, intimate feel. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's my favorite. I'm with you. It is, it is a great park. Now, since the old Yankee Stadium has been torn down, I would think there's no park that can't be torn down. Do you think that could happen to Wrigley and Fenway? Probably eventually. I I think eventually they will. Yeah. I, I think just that's the way baseball is going to is changing. I think you, what you're finding is a lot of a lot of people running these teams now that don't have the ties to the old way things were done. There are a lot of strictly businessmen, NBA, you know, Ivy League types, and they strictly look at it as a business. And that's that's what's brought about this whole analytics approach to baseball mm-hmm. it's how do we how do we improve how do we spend our money and that that is it has really dominated the sport and in fact a, a lot of people believe it's it's ruined some of the charm of the game that people that are not tied to the old way things were done major league baseball commissioner's office hired theo epstein you know he quit with the cubs and his goal his his charter is to figure out a way to bring the charm back to the game so what does that mean? You know, it's like, are we going to get away from all, you know, defensive shifts and, you know, launch angle and exit velocity and all that? Probably not. But it'll be interesting to see what, what they come up with uh, to try to do that. Odd that it would be him that right. they would put in charge exactly. of that. Right. So. I hear you ruining the charm of the game. So from what I understand, they're going to try quite a few things in the minor leagues first. Right like in extra innings maybe putting a guy on second well they actually are going to do that in the majors this year oh is that right you know they did it last last year in the shortened season oh i didn't know that first came about and they actually are going to do that again that's one of the ones that's going to hold over any other changes that you know of in the in the majors they're going to um do seven inning double headers which they did last year and and other other changes that they made uh you know the expanded playoffs are probably not going to do that the universal dh it's not going to be this year. They're going to. That's probably going to come up the next year when they have a new collective bargaining agreement. There's money involved in that, in that decision. So, but in, in the minors, what they're doing is uh, one team, one league is doing a 15 second pitch clock instead of 20 seconds. Mm. Uh, one one league is doing uh, the bases are bigger. Okay, and that's to prevent injury. Well, that I think, and also to try to encourage more stealing. Right, because the bases are now closer together. Right? 
Oh, by, so by they expanded the width of yeah, it. Yeah. So oh, interesting. I thought they were making it taller. No, no, no. It's the size of the, you know, I, don't, I forget what the square. Huh. If it's if it's uh, 12 square inches, it's going to 14 square inches or whatever. I would love to see more stealing. Well, that's, see, that's part of the charm of the game that's been lost is that, you know, yeah. like, you know the value of a steal now is very low in today's uh, today's game. Uh, what else? So they uh, they're gonna one league's gonna try the um, do the uh, robotic comp, you know, call it the automatic balls and strikes. I wanted to ask you about that. Are you in favor of an electronic strike zone? Yeah, I think I think it's fine. I'm surprised to hear you yeah. say that. I I'm mean, in favor of it too. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. I, I it's gonna it's, come. I think it's the accuracy is gonna be helpful. It, you know, you still have an umpire that still has to make calls. You know, but you just he'll get he'll get something in his ear that says it was a ball or strike, and he'll. He'll uh, take that. So. I think you're going to see more upsets. I think the Yankees are going to go down more because there's a lot of favoritism that goes on, like uh, especially in college. I was telling somebody the other day that the two at-bats that I remember most, like you always remember your home runs, but right. the negative at-bats that I remember were being called out on a strike three playing at LSU in my first at-bat and playing at UL Lafayette in my first at-bat. These pitches were like the width of my right. laptop outside, probably more than that, which is the size of a home plate. Right, right, yeah, that's right. I, I wanted to tell the umpire, like, you're only doing this because they're LSU and I'm Nickel State. That's right, yeah. How does that make you feel? It's so bad. Yeah. So you have 12 stadiums left to see what's next. Where are you headed? Well, I was talking to my son the other day. And uh, he does, he has uh, restaurants in uh, Tampa and in Dallas. So I think we're going to do, when he's there for business, I'm going to meet him out there for one or two games in Tampa. And then in Dallas, they, you know, they have a new ballpark, a new, uh, Ar- a new uh, was it ballpark at Arlington, whatever there, that uh, barely got used last year. Mm-hmm. So, I was fortunate so, to go to the World Series oh, last oh, year. Oh, yeah, wow. that park That's is cool. amazing. Yeah. There's nothing old-timey about it, though. Very modern. Right. It's like being in a mall. It's symmetrical. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, they said from the outside, it, it looks kind of funny, right? It look, somebody compared it to a, like a tabletop oven or something. It's something <laughs> strange like that, and it, it's it's apparently it's a different, a more mo- a modern look from for the stadium compared to some of the more traditional ones. As somebody who's traveled the world quite a bit, it feels very america like what is this other stadium doing here what a waste because it's right across the street the old ballpark in arlington and then you walk into there's a big bar to the right of the entrance the main entrance to the new park and you walk in and the first thought that i had was oh everything's bigger in texas like there's this bar with this gigantic screen tv screen that i mean it is probably like 30 feet by 20 feet i mean it's just humongous and then of course they have a million other tvs and it's it's two stories but it's just grand and it's really nice so it's a it's a cool place to go before the game that would be an example of where it would be the third generation ballpark i would have attended in in dallas or fort worth yeah that ballpark wasn't around that long right 94 i want to say Have you been to, well, first, since you mentioned Tampa, I should say I've been to that stadium. 
it felt like I was in Japan's single A, like their nice nicest field in their single A minor league program. Yeah, it's it's bad. That's how I felt when uh, I went to see the Marlins play when they were in the football stadium. Uh, mm. back, and that that was terrible. That was the oh. worst. I think that was probably the worst baseball park I've ever been in. Mm. It just wasn't suited well for it all. The upside of the Tampa Stadium, it's a it's a dome, is that you can get seats behind home plate, like real, ten rows up for like yeah, yeah thirty six dollars or something. Shame, yeah. Do you have something that you're going to publish soon that you want to talk about? Well, I mean, really, what I, what I'm continuing to do is just work on more. More uh, biographies, uh, players. One that I, uh, I signed up to do was uh, a guy named Charlie Gilbert, played in the uh, 30s, 40s. His brother was Tookie Gilbert. I did one of him already. I read it. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Lenny Yoakum was a player in the 40s. Played. He says he says a cup of coffee and a piece of apple pie. Oh yeah. With the Pirates. But then he wound up being a uh, Pittsburgh Pirate scout for like 35 years. His daughter called me a couple weeks ago and said, "Hey, I saw the story that you did. I really appreciate it. You, you captured Lenny's love of the game." She said, "I got all this stuff. I don't know what to do with." She said, "I need somebody to help me figure out what it is and what I need to do." She says, "Otherwise, I'm just going to throw it away." So I'll go over there. You must have been like a kid in a candy I, I, store. So I was like, she said, "I." Well, so I'll go through the thing. I looked at it, and it's like a lot of it was personal. A lot of it was just scouting reports that he did. You probably could go through there and find a few scouting reports that were pretty interesting that somebody might be interested in or whatever. Uh, but And he had photos, you know, a few photos. I think they had gone through and picked out anything with autographs and all his baseballs and all that stuff. They had already taken, you know, obviously mm-hmm. had all that. But... So, so I said, have you considered, you know, local library maybe taking some of it? Yeah. About a sports memorabilia. Somebody wants to, you know, we sort through this. She said, yeah, they don't really care to look at it. Hall of Fame. No, nah, they said they got too much stuff already. So I kind of went through all those, and I said, well, I'm not sure what, what your what your options are. And she says, I think I'm just going to shred it. Now she said, and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> are you serious? She said, yeah. I said, before you do that. Let me let me look at it. You know? mm-hmm. So she she sent me home with twelve boxes of stuff. And so what I told her what I would do was I would scan in the stuff that I thought she would be interested in, mm. all the photos. He kept meticulous records of games he played in, had the dates, you know, the articles and whatever. So I I think I scanned in almost five hundred images of either photos or letters or whatever. And uh, that he had, and uh, so I called her the day and said, "Look, I'm I'm ready to bring this stuff back to you. I mean, this is, you know, she's, oh man, this is great, you know." Mm-hmm. And so she, there's actually a couple of like scrapbook kind of things that she actually wants to keep, you know, that uh, that were his. And it's like I was in I was in hog heaven, man. I tell you, I just uh, just to a lot of people it probably wouldn't have meant much at all, but just uh, you know, just little things like, you, and this is where I think when you when I do the biographies. I can talk to somebody, talk to the person or their relatives. It really makes a lot of difference because, you know, in here he he got selected to go play in like a an all American all star game in Brooklyn when he was in high school. I mean, you don't you wouldn't find that anywhere else, right? Yeah. And it's and they and they got a picture of the, it's like this big of all the players that Whitey Ford was one of the players he played against, right? 
and in there it's got Leo DeRocher, uh, Branch Rickey, you know, Lee McPhail are all are all in the photo. And he his coach was George Sisler, was a Hall of Fame player, right? Hmm. You, you never would know this kind of stuff. Uh, one of the guys that uh, that I, I wrote an article about, uh, Nolan Vicknair, he'll be 96 in a couple of weeks. He he played a cup of coffee in even just the minor leagues, right? And he never he never got out. But in his career, he met Branch Rickey, Mel Ott, and Carl Hubble, you know, all Hall of Fame, either front office or players, whatever, as part of his minor league experience. Hmm. And to hear him talk about those guys and yeah. talk about players he played against, it's like, to me, that's where the that's where that's the enjoyment I get is hearing those kind of stories. And then, like you said, you know, when you when you get one published like that, and they re- and they're like, thank you for you know, the the Fasian family. Did you happen to see that? Yep. The the, mm-hmm. the, bro- the two brothers and the father that had all those championships. Mm-hmm. They were like they were thrilled. That's awesome. So I get enjoyment out of. Uh, no, nobody else that I know of in New Orleans writes about the old time players anymore. In the, you know, in the Peter Feeney days and the, you know, Bob Rossler, uh, Ron Bracado, those guys that worked at the time, they did stories like that fairly frequently because they knew a lot of these guys at, at a personal level. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, a lot, a lot of those players are gone now, but uh, uh, no, nobody writes about those kind of things anymore. And that's kind of the niche that I'm. And that's the feedback I get from the Crescent City sports guys is people apparently like that because they they can tell by how many people are reading the articles. And they said that it's an area, you know, it's 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 something we don't do otherwise. Everything else we do is current. Yesterday's scores, tomorrow's you know Saints game or whatever. And so um, that's kind of the that's kind of what I'm focusing on. You did some of that, right? Because I read an article about Altuve when they were yeah yeah I, the I, I occasionally. But they 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 tend to want me to focus on New Orleans related because their their website is New Orleans, South Louisiana, LSU, Tulane, yeah. Saints, you know, kind of thing. That's what they focus on. My grandfather told a lot of stories when I was a kid, and I was just getting at the age where I would really appreciate them. But I remember hearing the names that you're saying, yeah, yeah. and I would give anything to hear those stories yeah, yeah, again. Again. Yeah, sure. There was a picture that was framed that he kept above the bar that he owned or the sandwich shop. I guess a bar slash sandwich shop. I'm not sure. And it was four players in their baseball uniforms, and Musial was one of them. Okay. And my grandma was a hoarder, but I don't know if she hoarded the good stuff. But that's how I got that autograph Stan Musial ball is it was just kind of sitting there up on the shelf. But this framed picture that I only got to see once I believe it was sitting on the floor, leaning up against the wall. Well, I guess what happened to it? Flood. Katrina yeah, your, took it your out. Aunt told me oh, most of that stuff got. Oh, got she told yeah. you. Did she give you any gushy stuff? Like, I remember hearing stories about lipstick on his uniform. What I mean, else? What, what she told me was that you know he, after he played. He, I think he he owned or operated a couple of bars for like over forty years, and that people would just gravitate to him because he was so personable and and that uh, he, he just everybody knew him. You yeah, know? and uh, and that that you know, that was uh, p- part of his legacy was he, he was a 
a great guy that everybody liked to be around. And, um, yeah. He started the Babe Ruth League level in the early 50s in mm-hmm. New Orleans. Uh, he he uh, he got involved also with the when the Nord New Orleans Recreation Department got started. He he coached a number of teams in there. That was that was a day when players came back to New Orleans and they lived here and they got involved in the community. They got they coached the kids. Uh, uh, there's a guy named Doc Leggett. Didn't have much of a baseball career, but he was a Nord baseball director for like 40 years. Mm. And one of the things he did was he would go around and have these spring before the season started. He would get kind of he was looking for funding for his department, so he would take people on these tours, mm-hmm. and he would get former baseball player, you know, major league players, come in with him and be part of the marketing <laughs> effort. So, well, she did tell me about how he got the nickname Fats. Oh, so when they were when they were eight or ten years old and they were running around in the neighborhood with, and they would play their games. Uh-huh. Uh, one of his friends was Russell Gildig. Yeah. He would, he would just, it wasn't because he was fat or overweight or whatever. It was that he just, that name, nickname stuck. And in fact, uh, 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 Gildig turned out to be a lifelong friend. They actually played together with the Pelicans for a year. He owned. He operated the bar with your granddad, uh, also. So they they knew each other all all that time. But he's the one that gave your granddad the name nickname Fats, and it was just, hey, you know, hey Fatty, hey Fats, mm. you know, type thing. And but not because he was chubby or mm-hmm. overweight or whatever. You know. Yeah, my grandma always called him Fatty. If he was in the other room, hey yeah. Fatty. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Talk about. Babe Ruth's connection to New Orleans. Did he play here a little bit? He, uh, I think I told you that uh, the major league teams, several major league teams used to do their spring training. This was before Florida and Arizona became popular spring training mm-hmm. sites in the late 40s and early 50s. So those teams would come south to play. And the Yankees came, I think, several years. And um, he came with, with them here and. I think uh, 1923, I think was one particular year that uh, they they would typically go and make a stop in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, do some training there, take, take advantage of the hot spring baths and whatever, mm-hmm. and then they would come, come to New Orleans. And uh, uh, the story about him is that he, uh, one of the stories is that, I wasn't able to substantiate this, but I've heard it several times, so there may be some truth to it. He, 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 uh, uh, Got a little drunk one night, and uh, of course they had curfews, and they were staying at the uh, uh, Roosevelt Hotel. Back then, it was the Roosevelt Hotel. There's a Roosevelt Hotel here now. Are you okay. saying it's a, it was a different? Well, Roosevelt? no, it was the same hotel. It, it changed. Remember, it changed names at one point. Oh, it, I didn't realize it, that. It came back as, oh, the, okay. as the Waldorf Roosevelt. Mm. But anyway, some teammates had to sneak him into his room to keep him from getting uh, fined, uh, and of course he. <laughs> He was he was uh, known for a lot of eating and drinking, and that the newspapers talked about all the restaurants that he went to. Went to the went to the racetrack, and uh, they took him fishing down in the bayous one day, and whatever. One year, there was a, a woman made a charge that uh, that she uh, had relationships with him, and that he had to fight this. And so, uh, when he came to New Orleans, he he kind of got out of the New York arena where they were. Uh, where this is a big issue, 
in his, uh, his the story was his wife came to New Orleans that spring also to, to kind of keep tabs on him. So <laughs> I, I don't know if any of that. Uh, the newspaper account, I did find the newspaper accounts about the, the accusations the woman made. Now, whether his wife was upset about it, I, I don't know. But, uh, but, uh, now, when you go to Camden Yards in Baltimore, you can walk to Babe Ruth's yeah, house right, where yeah. he grew up, yeah, right? It's right around right the corner. Right close to the nearby area, yep. That's very cool. Okay, so I want to ask you some fun questions if you have time. Sure. What is your favorite Italian dish? When you go to these restaurants, what do you typically wow. get? I'm a, I'm a sucker for homemade pasta. So yeah. anything that's homemade, I, I don't know. One of, one of the restaurants we found in, uh, I think it was in New York, had a, a gnocchi dish with a gorgonzola sauce on it. It was out of this world. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't know if you if you've ever eaten. Uh-uh. It's 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 like little potato dumplings, and then you put either sauce or red gravy or whatever on it, and it's like uh, it's pretty good. So our my my grandparents in Mississippi made gnocchi with sweet potatoes instead of the you know white potatoes, and that was one of their favorite dishes. So whenever we go to a restaurant and they have it on the menu, say, "Well, do you ever make? You ever heard of sweet potato gnocchi?" And they were like. Nah, that's that. That's not possible. You know, nobody does that. And it's like, yeah, well, they do. <laughs> I tend to favor more the dishes, the, the non-traditional types of Italian dishes. Where if you go like to Moscas and you know the chicken a la grande <laughs> with all that garlic is is super. You know, so more than just the lasagnas, ravioli, pasta, meatballs, whatever. But uh, what is your favorite Italian restaurant in New Orleans? I would have to say uh, Restaurante Filippo over in uh, in Metairie, right off the causeway. Mm. They got they got a really good uh, red gravy, uh, red <laughs> sauce. It's kind of sweet, and, and I don't know we don't make it that way, but it's really different. Uh, I've never seen somebody's face light up so much talking about food. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Social media net negative or net positive for society. Uh, net positive. Uh, I think uh, uh, I, I see a lot of, uh, outside of the outside of the business world. I see a lot of uh, people that use it for connections that otherwise would never happen. You know. True. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a a big user myself, but my wife uh, at times has been, and she's connected with people that never would have found otherwise you know went to high school or whatever and they and they and they pick up right where they were 20 years ago or yeah. 25 years ago it's, well i don't think i'd be sitting with you here today if it weren't for twitter right correct that's right yeah so, i tell you the uh one is fairly new fairly recent is the athletic that that is really a first class uh, operation they cover all sports of course I'm, I'm mostly interested in, in baseball but they cover all sports. They got they got writers there that got laid off in all these other ESPN and all these other places recently. They've managed to collect all of those. And mm. there's top quality writing and thought uh, thought leadership, and uh, I, that's probably my favorite. My dad had always subscribed to Sports Illustrated when I was a kid, and then when I was in college, I believe I was in college when ESPN the Mag came out. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought, well, that can't be any good, ESPN, the magazine. And, and sure enough, we subscribed, and it was awesome. I was very impressed with ESPN, the magazine. Well, it was non-traditional for the time, right? Because it had a lot of a lot of it was pictures, a lot of it was current, mm-hmm. you know, uh, celebrities. A lot of it was not even sports-related. They would bring in fashion and all, you know, all kinds of other kinds of things that appealed to people. So I think that's, to me, that was a... A different generation of people that it attracted, I believe. Um, so, did you subscribe to many sports magazines throughout the years? Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I still still do. Uh, so, Baseball America, Sports Illustrated, Baseball Digest. I, I recently turned off ESPN magazine because it just it wasn't stuff that I was interested in anymore. The uh, Baseball Hall of Fame has a memories uh, uh, publication once a quarter. This really first class it does mm. a good job. Stuff like that. And you get hard copies delivered to your house? Yeah, I'm a hard copy guy. I mean... I am too. I still get the Wall Street Journal. I alternate papers a lot of times. It's, it's, I've still got them in a lot of... Most of those in my library. I mean, it's like... My wife just... She, it's like kills me every time one of those comes in. She's like, you need to throw one out. And it's like, no. I'll I bet. Think, I think I've kept every sports, uh, sports Illustrated that I ever had. My dad's the same way. I'll bet your library is impressive. I like collecting books. I've, I've read, I could say I read probably half of them. <laughs> and that was one of the things I thought when, when I retired was I'll just have time to read uh, all these books that I bought that I hadn't read yet. And uh, Do you find that you're just as busy in retirement? Yeah. Me too. Uh, for sure. And I wonder all the time, like, well, how do people have time when they have a job? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the same way. And, and I think the... The um, uh, I, I use I use them in my research. So I mean, of course, a lot's on the internet, but you've got um, uh, inf- you know articles and whatever that you're not going to find there. And and I've got fortunately I have them all cataloged, and I have I know what's in most of the most of the magazines or the books. I have uh, indexed it. Wow! So I can I can I can pull up a report of Will Clark and find the you know. Uh, 50 or whatever articles or books that were written about him. Oh, so I awesome. use that a lot in my in my own research. Um, and, uh, so what are you working on right now? I am working on, uh, actually I'm working with Sabre on a project to collect all the employee information that's in media guides. So, of course, you got all the players and managers, but then there's the general manager, the front office people, they want to create a database of all of those employees for the major league clubs. So I'm I'm just typing in. I have most of the media guides going back to 1970. So I don't have to scan. I don't have to look to somebody to get them. And it's, I mean, it's a simple, it's mundane, typing into a spreadsheet. But it's uh, we're making really good progress. And I think they're about to publish that uh, later this summer, at least the first version of that. So you would be able to search this and say, when was... Uh, Bobby Cox, no, well, that's probably a bad example because he's a coach or a manager. But uh, Branch Rickey, when when was he the general manager for the St. Louis Cardinals or the Pittsburgh Pirates or whatever te- teams he uh, he, he uh, was associated with? And so it, people use that in their re- it, what it is it's a research tool for people that are writing um, about those front office personnel. So I'm doing that. Uh, I'm working on a, a, a bio for Charlie uh, Gilbert. One of one of the three that uh, isn't there a stadium named after a Gilbert here? 
there was a Larry Gilbert Stadium at one time. I don't know where where it is, but Larry Gilbert was the father of these two players. Okay. And he was the he was the manager of the Pelicans for a long time. Oh. Okay. So he was a very very popular guy here in New Orleans. And when you say Pelicans, you're talking about the, the baseball old, New Orleans Pelicans. Pelican. Yeah, yeah, the old Pelicans. Yeah. Um, and then what else? Um, I'm probably going to do a, a story about Lenny Oakham with all the information I got I, I've collected about him or gotten from his daughter. Uh, there's there's a lot of good stories in there about him. And do you have a, a schedule when you wake up in the morning? Do you write for three hours or research in blocks of time or anything like that? Do you find that your attention span has waned with the advent of technology? Not really. No. Um, that's good. I, I, I don't. I don't have a. Uh, most of these don't have a deadline, so I'm. I'm not trying to work toward. You know, uh, the only deadline I have is a. I do a weekly blog on my own website. You know, for uh, that I put out Monday morning. So that's the only thing I have that I say I got to get that done. Everything else I can. You know, the the commitment dates are not firm from the people that I'm writing for. Do you ever find yourself up late on Sunday night trying to meet your own yeah, deadline? Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, I do that uh, yeah. too. Yeah, self-inflicted stress. It's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> right, but I do. So, it. And it's like it's not like anybody's really gonna miss it if I don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. I know. Yeah, so. so I'm deviating from fun questions a bit here, but what about your will? Do you have a place where all of your indexed magazines and stuff are gonna go when your time is up? Yeah, my, my, yeah. my children. Uh, How many kids do you have? I have four. And boys? One boy, yeah. Is he interested in, yeah. Yeah, just as interested? Yeah, he's a pretty rabid baseball fan. That's awesome. And then I've got, you know, several grandsons, three grandsons, so some of them wind up hopefully in their uh, in their hands. And did all of you guys play baseball? Yeah, I played uh, high school. We won a state championship one year, and uh, this is small school level in Mississippi. We had, we had a really good pitcher that, if you can believe, he struck out like 75% of the batters he faced. Whoa. He like threw three, four no-hitters and uh, didn't give up an earned run all year. <laughs> so we, we had a – we had he was, he, was the, he was the main guy. I was, I was a sophomore. I was the first time I'd ever really played at the high school level. And uh, I was probably the worst guy on the team. I couldn't hit my weight, so – I had a guy on the podcast, Brent McDonald. You might enjoy that episode. He talks about he had two first-rounders. These guys were in eighth grade at Sci Falls where I went to high school. When I graduated, they were in eighth grade. Well, the school is ninth to twelfth grade. One of them's right-handed, one of them's left-handed. They were both pitchers. They were expected to go third and fifth overall. The guy who went third, had a con- they had a money dispute, and he, he ended up going 15th. But he said that... The lefty, his name is Scott Casimir. He led the American League in strikeouts one year. He would strike out 19 of 21 hitters. He averaged 19 strikeouts a game. This is 5A Texas high school baseball. It's pretty good. Yeah, and it's a pretty good, probably one of the better districts in the state, if not the country. And so they only had to get two outs a game. And so he said... We didn't take a lot of ground balls. There was no point. We tried to work on hitting. And then the other guy, his name was Clint Everts. He went to the Expos fifth overall. This is 2002. And he averaged 18 strikeouts a game. So, crazy. This guy, he was a left-hander. And I played second base. And we had to shift. 
defensive shift before the shifts. I was second base, but I played over in the hole toward first base because batters, right-handed batters, could not get around on him mm. at all. I caught more ground balls in the hole, and it just that was the way we knew to play it that way. And more often than not, that's where they went. If I gave you $100,000 and forced you to invest it in one of these three companies, Amazon, Apple, or Tesla, which would you choose? Probably Amazon. Amazon. And I think, I, I just think they're, they're still growing. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's all kind of stuff they're getting into, you, you know, you never would have thought about. But um, uh, they're, they're going to they're gonna dominate, yeah. dominate the world, I think. Uh, Good choice. Do you invest in any sort of stocks? Not not individual stocks. I'm uh, an index. More indexes and mm. mutual funds. And what is your favorite baseball-related book? Uh, you mentioned Moneyball earlier. My own book. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, I have a lot of favorites, but the one I read probably that intrigued me the most uh, was about Billy Martin. It, it was a 2015. Uh, uh, Bill Pennington was a beat writer for the Yankees and New York Times uh, writer, sports writer. Uh, what was fascinating about it was everybody associates what he did with the Yankees and, the, and all the turmoil. You know, five time, five different times he was manager. But when he managed the Twins, the Tigers, the A's, Rangers before that, he turned those teams in. They were they were mediocre teams that he turned into winners. Hmm. And he just, you know, you know, talk about how would he do with analytics? He would totally reject that, right? Mm. I mean, he was definitely an eye test guy. And, and and the reason was he had instincts just about games, about situations, about players. He had a lot of experience. I mean, he was a Casey Stengel. Uh, protege, so he learned he learned a lot about managing from there. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so this book is not just about his Yankees career. It it starts from from a managerial standpoint. Starts with his first job as a Twins manager, and there were consistent things that he did in each one of those that made him into winners. Mm-hmm. And it's like that was I, I didn't know that before. I, I always associated him with. With uh, you know, Yankees winning a couple of World Series with them, you know, in the '70s. So I'm just too young to remember Billy Martin. My only image of him is kicking dirt on a on a That's an usually umpire. What, usually <laughs> yeah, he was one of those characters of the game. I had I wrote a piece recently about baseball needs more characters of the game. He would be one that we need back in the game. You know, it's just it, it gotten gotten too bland. I mean, it's too. You know who else would reject all these analytics is my Papa Fats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he would hate it. Right. Right. Yeah. What about a favorite baseball-related movie? Uh, let me think of... Uh, it's, it's the one that uh, Kevin Costner was in. He was a Pittsburgh Pirates... I mean, a Detroit Tigers pitcher. Hmm. I forget. Uh, For the Love of the Game. That's yeah. It. And he, he, a good pitched, one. he pitched the no-hitter on the last... On the game he knew was going to be his last. Remember, his arm was about to fall off, and I, I, I like that one. I even had a tough time convincing my dad that steroids were so prevalent. Like, when I would go and play in Kansas, and the Jayhawk League was a little more prestigious mm-hmm. back then, mm-hmm. probably second to the Cape. Right. 
pro- at least half of my team were really? using them. Really? Yeah. And it was guys you wouldn't think. Yeah. And everybody was looking for an edge. And they say Bond started using them because he knew he was more talented than the guys that were putting up better numbers than him. So he's like, screw you. I'm going to start using the juice. And, and So it, do you think he should be in the Hall of Fame? Clemens, Ian Clemens, Manny Ramirez, uh, Sammy Sosa. I I hate I hate just the thought of it because there are so many guys like I was just saying who you wouldn't suspect who are using it. If Clay Hensley was using, who was giving up Bonds as home run, then what do you do? Right. So it's it's like all or nobody. Like somebody got in recently who I know is on. Was it Bagwell? Did Bagwell just get in the hall? Yeah, a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's juicing for sure, for sure. But they never, they never, he, they never had any positive, never had any positive examples of that though. Yeah. So he and he and uh, Mike Piazza was another one that thought, remember, that he was using. Yeah, and he probably was. Yeah. So many of those guys. I, I tend to look at it from the standpoint of what's the whole body of work that they did. Mm. What's the whole career look like? Bonds was juiced or not. He was a, he was a really good player. Clemens, same thing. I mean, those guys were. Yep. They were, no, you're right. They were far and above. You know, uh, who was that guy for the Orioles? Um, Brady Anderson. One year he had 52 home runs. Yeah. Never came close before. Yeah. His body of work is is not you know it's not that. So. Or like Brett Boone, I think yeah. he juiced up to get a hundred million dollar contract yeah, right. yeah. and then never had to juice again. Right. It was such a crazy time. I hate that I played in that era. I was one of those guys that was borderline. Like, I I was told by my coaches, you got a 50-50 shot of being drafted. Mm -hmm. And so, Juice would have probably put me over the edge. But everybody had a reason to take it, right? Right. Like I said, Bonds, while I was on the edge. And I always, I never wanted to have to tell my kids that I used steroids, and that's why I didn't do it. Okay, last question. How can people find your work and connect with you online? Well, there's several uh, several ways. Uh, I have a, a website that I support. Uh, it's called the Tenth Inning. T h e t e n t h i n n i n g. dot com. It probably has a link to uh, everything else I do. Uh, if, if you want to go to one place, uh, I do a weekly uh, blog uh, with that. On Twitter, I'm uh, at the Tenth Inning. Is my Twitter name. On Facebook, uh, it's the tenth inning. Now there are several out there. You have to find the one that's baseball related. My email is uh, Richard at the tenth inning dot com, so I can be emailed and I'll I'll respond to most everything. So very good, Richard. This was fun, man. I appreciate you coming by. Yeah, it's good talking baseball. I love it. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Friends, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode with Richard, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 